Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This latest episode is with Stephen Young, who has been Chief Executive of Halton Council for just 14 months, but you wouldn't think it. What follows is a really in-depth, thoughtful conversation about how you get things done in a council and how you engage with the wider system and how you drive change without driving everyone mad. Stephen and I discuss the Radical Transformation Programme at Halton, which seeks to move the Council's attention away from constantly dealing with crisis and on to early help and prevention. We talk about the approaches and tactics you need to deploy to make a success of it, including knowing how much credit as a new leader you have in the bank and using it carefully, as well as my usual favourite topic of levelling up Halton style this time, and also the benefits of being a Council within a mayoral combined authority. We also talk about what a place needs to attract inward investment, including putting the right resources into developing skills within the local population and ensuring public services and the broader public realm are up to scratch. Finally, and this is exciting, I wasn't expecting this, we had a great conversation about AI and the impact it could have on council services. This is a big area of interest for me, and I expect to be talking about this a lot in the future. Enjoy. Hi, Stephen. It's a pleasure to get the chance to have a conversation with you. Um, you have a lot of big fans, actually, one particular being Donna Hall, who we both know well and uh, you know, recommended that we have a conversation. So I'm really pleased to, to have the opportunity. But for people listening who might not know who you are, can you just say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Stephen Young. I'm the Chief Executive of Halton Borough Council. Um, so I've been in local government now my entire career, so it's been 28 years. I've worked for a range of different councils, Lancashire County Council, and did 19 years around Greater Manchester, which is where I first met Donna. Fantastic. And you've been a chief, chief exec for just over a year now. So how did you find that transition? Interesting, really. So, uh, it's, it's, you know, I suppose like all people that get the first chief exec's job, you know, you have certain assumptions of what it's going to be and what it's going to be like. Um, yeah. And I think those change quite a bit as as you get into the job and the job evolves and you evolve. So, uh, you know, generally speaking, I think it's been good. I've enjoyed it coming into Halton. It's a really supportive place with supportive members and supportive partners, which is really good. But there have been a few bumps along the way where you think, oh, I didn't quite expect it to be like that, or <laughs> things haven't quite worked as you expect as you expect it to. Come. Kind of to kind of flow but generally speaking really positive it's been a great move fantastic and what was your background in local government so chief execs obviously emerge from various various parts of, of a council what, what's your background so um, I, primarily my senior roles have all been around regeneration, environmental services. So when I was at Bolton, I became the director of place, which is a, a fancy sounding title. 
people, which in effect means responsible for all their environmental services and all their regeneration, went to Lancashire County Council, which obviously is a much bigger council, did the same role on a, on a much bigger footprint. So if I have a skill, um, it's around regeneration and the management of those frontline services. What you find in local government is people will either become, historically people always became the chief exec when they were the, the, the solicitor of the town or the borough treasurer. Yeah. That they moved more towards children's services and adult services over a number of years. And then there was a period when I made the step up where environmental services and regeneration was very much the, the flavour of the day. And it certainly still is with the whole levelling up agenda and things like that, which um, we can we can talk a bit about later. But, um, just on taking on this role, you mentioned maybe not expecting some things. Were there things that you wish you'd known before you took on the role just over a year ago? Yeah, and some of the, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was only thinking about this the other day, and, and some of them sound really obvious, but um, it's not as easy as you think is the overriding message. Now, I never thought the job would be easy, <laughs> not that naive, but things, you know, change, transformation, getting large groups of people to come along with you is, is incredibly difficult and can be quite um, resource intensive. That's the biggest takeaway I've had. So, you know, Holton's a you know, standard size council. So we have 54 members. You know, I've got countless partners, 4,000 members of staff, I think we have. Um, so, you know, when you're trying to bring that range of people with differing opinions on a particular journey, sometimes that can yeah. be incredibly challenging. I think that was the biggest thing. It's more difficult than you think. I can imagine that well being true. I think really good chief execs exhibit a calm that you don't see what's going on in the background until you're actually in the seat and you realise it is, I wouldn't say a front, but it's a, it's a projection of, of, uh, calmness that maybe isn't there on the inside. I think you're right, Andrew. You know, people on occasions, people have said to me, you, you appear incredibly calm and you think, well, that, that might be what you're thinking. But inside, I'm thinking this is really quite difficult. <laughs> and I'm sure all the chief executives I've known, including people like Donna, who I really look up to, I'm sure, you know, she always came across as incredibly calm and balanced. But I, obviously, I don't know what she was feeling and thinking inside and may well, you know, be feeling and thinking the same things that I'm feeling and thinking now. And I suppose that that just plays a little bit to insecurities, I suppose. No, I, I'm quite sure that she was. I mean, she she certainly she is a very calm person, actually. And you know, one of those whatever the opposite of being a a hero leader, where you have to exhibit that you're totally in control of everything. You know, she she seems to be the, the opposite of that, which is really impressive. So, just to talk a little bit about Halton itself. Now, I think one of the main things that you're driving forward is a major transformation program. Can you say a little bit about the level of challenge that you face as a council and then what are the main elements of your reform program? Yeah, so you know, Holton's very typical to, to most councils. So we've had thirty years of austerity now. Um, you know, that hasn't gone anywhere. So we as a council are facing budget challenges over the next few years. Again, that's typical for, for all councils. The size and scale differs depending on your, you know, a range of, of different factors. Holton, we're taking out 27 million over the next three years is the amount of money we need to remove. As a council, I think all councils went down this route. They historically just did lots of cuts, so, you know, scaling yeah. services back. But you reach a point where it almost becomes death by a thousand cuts and you need to be a bit more strategic in how you do that. So yeah. we've reached the point now where we want to do a, a peer, you know, a process of transformation. Um, so as opposed to just cutting lots of services and taking money out, we want to look at the way in which we deliver services. So particularly our adults and children's services, which are incredibly complex. Um, yeah. We, we think there's money that we can save in that and give better outcomes. So just to give you for, just to give you an instance, yeah. um, you know, if you're a family in crisis in the borough um, at the moment, our edge of care services aren't perhaps as strong as they could be. So what happens is you fall into crisis, you just fall straight through the system and into the care of the council. Sadly, if a child falls into the care of the council, that's a really expensive way in which to, to deal with those issues. And sadly, the outcome for the children is 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 less than it would have been had they stopped with the family. Yes. So there's a real way in which the council could transform its thinking and create more wraparound services for families to try and keep families together, to keep children in in the family home. Uh, that will ultimately give a better outcome for the for the child, but also save money for the council. Now that sounds incredibly straightforward when when you describe it in those terms, but it is incredibly complex because the needs of modern families 
are incredibly complex. A lot of the support mechanisms that they had historically have gone. So it's how you wrap all of that up in such a way while still providing, you know, children's services for, for those children that need the care of the, the local authority. So it is quite a complex process. It involves a lot of change. So a lot of people working in those services have to change the way in which they think. You've obviously got to take members on the journey as well, so they understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. It might involve things like, you know, great use of technology. So there's a range yeah. of different things you can bring in. So all of these are lots of individual change processes. We almost think as our change process is probably a thousand small projects. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. One of the things that constantly baffles people who are trying to get their heads around around public services, particularly local public services, is the question that you've really set out there it's how do you deal with the current level of crisis whilst also putting in place preventative measures for the future how can you square that i mean how are you managing to do that or what's your approach so what we've done is you know it needs an injection of resources you know it's impossible to say that we can move from one model to the other um and and not not require an injection of resources so the council um was able to inject some money so 7 million pounds is what we've injected into 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 the system and the way in which you can do that you know using children's services as an example you know you can invest more in the edge of care and as you start to capture more families within the edge of care services you can slowly begin to withdraw um from um you know people in in acute need um but by but you can only do that when you've got additional resources you can't you can't invest more in the edge of care and withdraw at the same time it has to be done in a really really structured way so uh, you know you do need money you do need investment you need vision you need clarity what it is you want to achieve so we've set up a um a process within the council which is absolutely modeled on tony blair's delivery unit that he had when he was the yeah. prime minister so it's exactly the same process um invested heavily in in getting additional staff and resources in uh, and we manage it in exactly the same way daily stand-up meetings really detailed performance information that, that tells um, you know, myself, the the senior politicians, the progress the council is making and that we can see that for every pound that we're investing or every pound that we're investing in sort of a change of services, having a, a, you know, a similar impact within within the more expensive parts of the council. So it is a slow and iterative process, because, like I said, you've got to take people with you. You've got to communicate to staff. You've got to communicate to members, to partners, to the public, and whilst at the same time transforming and changing the way in which services are delivered. I love the idea of having a Michael Barber style style delivery unit in a council. That that sounds fantastic. Now I speak to a lot of council chief execs. I haven't heard that before. It sounds it sounds great. It sounds like something that would really drive change. Is, has, has this been going for a while? Because I'm guessing in certain places without the right leadership, they would do it for a few months and then all of a sudden it would stop to happen and p- people would drift back to to how they are. But is that now part of your culture? Um, for want of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of our culture. It's been going now for maybe four months, five months, six months. It's around that kind of time. So it's not been going for a very long time, but absolutely the daily stand up. So every morning they have a stand up at nine o'clock. Um, uh, you know, again, that's a very deliberate ploy because what we don't want to do, you know, if I was to say to the staff, right, I need you to transform and improve our edge of care services off you go. That's obviously a really long journey. But if you can chunk that up into thousands of small steps, it's more yeah. difficult for someone to say, Every day, I haven't done that small step you've asked me to do, as opposed to saying, you know, go away and transform the service. And then in a month's time, come back and say, what have you done? Well, I've not had the chance to get at it yet. So we deliberately chunk it up with daily stand ups. And we've got really detailed performance reporting information that we get, um, again, all modelled on the um, Tony Blair delivery unit. Um, so we had a consultant who worked with us um, right at the start. Um, one of the few consultants that we've had, to be fair, um, in terms of setting up our process, because we recognised that we wanted to do it to ourselves. But he he was a big advocate of the, um, the, the the approach that Tony Blair and New Labour used. So we've adopted that um, from from the get go, and it's been incredibly successful. You know, the staff, like I say, are just taking lots of small steps on a daily basis, and you can see the organisation begin to move, which is much more manageable than saying, you know, go and transfer form the council because that's a really big thing to try and do and for people to get their heads around. I think that's fascinating and how do you manage the kind of central control and and ownership of that alongside ensuring that your senior leaders in the different departments feel empowered to go away and do things? Do you have any trouble kind of keeping that balance? 
So what we did was we we were quite lucky, quite fortunate. So there was um there was a director of HR here who'd done transformation years ago, but incredibly well respected through the council. So obviously I've been in post fourteen months, so I recognise I didn't have the credit in the bank, you know, to go around uh and, and do all these things. And obviously it's not the the job of the chief exec to do that. So we appointed um Richard, who who is the the director. He now does the um, transformation team and all the transformation work. So he's got a lot of credit in the bank. So he finds that relationship of, you know, trying to move um, other directors and working with other directors much more straightforward than it perhaps would have done had I brought somebody yeah. externally in or brought somebody new in or brought a consultant in to do that work. So he's really good in terms of that. He's very strategic in terms of his thinking. Um, you know, he really works well in this uh, environment, well liked throughout the council by the members and by the officers. So he's been able to kind of bridge that gap that you're describing and, you know, really been able to move the dial quite a long way on a number of these issues. And Richard also acts as my deputy within the department. So obviously I, as well as the chief executive, I'm the executive director of the chief executive department. So Richard also deputises for me. So again, you know, we've positioned okay. him that role as, as very closely linked to the chief exec. So that's kind of how we've been able to do it. But I have worked in councils in the past where they've brought somebody in or they've had a consultant and there is that tension that you described. Now, I yeah. wanted to avoid that because this needs to be about the transformation programme, not about personal egos and tensions. Trust is so important. And I love that phrase you used of, I think it was credit in the bank, you know, where somebody has built up years of trust that then they are a very good person to, to lead a change because it isn't someone new coming in, as you say, and, and that type of thing. Re- really interesting. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. I think people will find that interesting. And I think the other thing about just to mention about Richard as well is, you know, he's he's in, uh, you know, like we described before with regard to Don, he's incredibly calm. So on a few occasions when I have my wobbles and think, oh, are we really going to deliver this? Is this going to happen? You know, Richard has this ability because he is all of the detail and he is calm in his nature to be able to walk me through the program, the progress that we're making, you know, where where we're going to start to see the the returns that we want to see. And he's able to kind of just calm me, calm the members, which I think is which I think is yeah. an incredible skill to have. We're incredibly lucky to have him, but I think he's been pivotal in terms of in terms of, of, of driving the transformation the council wants to achieve. And and just because we've been talking about it a lot, to give Richard his full credit, what's his full name? So he's called Richard Rout. Um Right. By pure chance, many years ago when I worked in Bolton, Richard was also at Bolton, but I hadn't spoken to him in many years and was surprised when I came here. He was the, the director of HR. Um, you know, when we were pulling together, when I was pulling together the kind of the transformation idea and, and talking to members about that, I always had, you know, this role of transformational director in mind. Uh, and, you know, Richard was really a, quite a clear fit for that role again yeah. you know when when that role came out it was one of those that that's kind of Richard's job and that was seen as 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 something that the organization knew was going to happen and got incredible amount of support from senior people in there that Richard would be fantastic for that because of the credit and because of the fact he'd done things like this in the past and he's one of those rare people I think who not only is calm but is prepared to speak truth to power and you know and so He's fantastic to have in the room because you know that he will push back. He will not just say yes for the sake of it. So, you know, really good. He has all those raw ingredients that you need for that sort of transformational program and that transformational approach. That's amazing. I I hope when people listen to this, you're not bombarded by too many calls wanting to understand the model a lot. But you're being incredibly generous to the rest of your team there, Richard, in particular. Um, I want to talk a little bit about levelling up. We can't avoid levelling up. So it's a good question for you, particularly with your background in regeneration. So for better or worse, levelling up is all the rage. So what, what does it mean for Halton? I mean, Halton, I mean, there's a few bits on, on levelling up, and I have gone on record to talk about a few of these in the past. Um, you know, so generally speaking, the, the concept of levelling up, I, I agree with the concept. I think it makes a lot of sense um, in terms of my definition of levelling up. I think there are some inbuilt issues with the way that which the government's gone yeah. about levelling up, and that's not me being political about it, but just this notion of bidding in for funding, you know, the amount of resources that are spent in terms of doing that, you know, what are you levelling up from and to, you know, so there's been lots of cases for areas that I think are, are pretty much levelled up already, who've been incredibly successful in bids. So it does have lots of issues within the within the way in which it's been delivered. But I do agree with the concept of levelling up. For a place like Holton, so we have, um, like most northern boroughs, we have areas of um, of deprivation, which clearly do need levelling up. And some of those areas of deprivation, you know, need levelling up in incredibly basic ways. So basic skills, housing, health, 
a lot of the things that a lot of us will just take for granted. And then we've yeah. got areas of, of real affluence uh, within the borough. Um, I think the levelling up agenda has been good for, for, for parts of Halton. So things like our town deal in Runcorn, about 50 million investment has been brilliant, you know, and we've done some right. amazing things there. Um, but there are, there's a lot more to do. Um, and we've been unsuccessful in a number of bids as of most, most places which is difficult because you build up expectation in a local community, expectation amongst partners and members, and then you're unable to deliver that um, because of yeah. rules that aren't always that transparent. I think it was one in five in round two got bids got approved in a very competitive process. And as you say, is it the best use of those four out of five councils time who didn't get the funding you know there's got to be a better way of doing it but um, I mean I have to kind of declare an interest because we we work with councils to help them bid for funding so but I still can't help but think there's a better way of doing it you mentioned your towns fund deal what are some of the uh, just a few examples of what what that 50 million was spent on so really interesting, actually. So first of all, I mean, a lot of it was on, you know, public realm, pocket parks, the sort of stuff you hear in lots of bids. So just to give you an inst- for instance, so Runcorn Station, which is on the West Coast Main Line, when you used to arrive in Runcorn, you were you were greeted with a, um, I think it was about a 12 foot grey wall with water running down it, most unattractive. You couldn't really see the assets of the town, the bridge, the Brindley, the high street, because yeah. you were blocked. You had to go through a subway. It just wasn't a great access to the town. So that's all been got, that's all been removed now, and we've created a European style piazza which is fantastic Ooh, that's attracting lovely. interest from hoteliers you know local businesses or regional businesses that want to open bars coffee shops all of those sorts of things so that that's been where some of the money's gone we spent some of the money on um moving some of the key services that you need in areas where there's higher levels of deprivation into the area where the need is so again this is not unique to halton if you overlay where your areas of deprivation are is and then you look at where you know your college provision is your health provision your council provision often there's a disjoint so you've got areas of deprivation in one part of the town and then you've got your service delivery in another part of the town so we've repurposed a building in Runcon or repurposing a building in Runcon where we can bring in health and education so an area yeah. that needs additional health support and educational support dropping those su- those support networks right into the middle of the of that town which is obviously important and that will then help address some of the long-term issues that we've got um, in in terms of health and, and education in, in places like Runcon Town Centre. We're bringing new housing in. Again, you know, with the uh, the decline of the high street um, and online shopping and all, all of those challenges, we recognise the ways in which you can keep places like Runcorn and Widness vibrant is to have, you know, people working and living uh, in the town centre as well as a retail core. So we're focusing on housing. And then some of the other interesting things that we're doing. Um, so we're blessed in Halton with having um, two real world-class research centres. So SciTech Darsborough, mm-hmm. which, you know, has the largest supercomputer in the UK and doing some incredibly intelligent things with artificial intelligence and and quantum physics and the like and the heath which is doing some stuff on vertical farming and renewable energy sources so we developed something called the digital center which is the repurposing of an existing building as part of our town deal and that in effect will become an incubation space for 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 fledgling businesses that ultimately could end up at static darsborough so you know that easy and easy out terms standard sort of stuff you know business support that the council will wrap around it you know, really strong link to Cytec Darsbury and the Heath. And then hopefully over a period of time, you know, people will come in, maybe renting a desk at first as their business grows, um, ultimately move on to Cytec Darsbury. But that also drives footfall in Runcorn Town Centre. So there's some quite innovative things that we've done, um, as well as the usual sort of pocket parks and public realm. I think that's really fascinating, particularly the focus on new technology. And, you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence and obviously the the net zero challenge and some of the things that, that you're doing there. That feels really current and really exciting and something that not very many other places maybe have. I mean, it's interesting. The, the, the whole artificial intelligence thing, I mean, I had a bit of a, a, a Damascus moment. A couple I mean, of it's, weeks re- ago. it's really taken off the, the oh. discussion around it now. I mean, you know, generative AI and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's very, it's very current. It is. And, you know, and, and, I, and I can see a large part of it, you know, providing the future for council services. So, you know, again, I had my Damascus moment a few weeks ago when I was at a conference and they were talking about the future of AI and local government and I hadn't quite appreciated how strong the links are. So, for example, things like planning, you know, we've got obviously a big 
large planning team who, um, you know, when people are planning application in, will overlay the application versus our planning documents and regional and national planning guidance, and then obviously come to a decision. You know, artificial intelligence is now at that position where it can yeah. do that. You know, it can do it much more quickly. It can make subjective judgments around yeah. escape and lots of things where I th- historically you'd think well a machine couldn't do that you know you can get um call centers now or you can get people you know who want to speak to the council via whatsapp or a range of different communication tools and they can actually just be speaking to a bot who understands yeah. all, all the processes of the councils the rules and can actually make those judgments so you could see a situation where we could become a 24 hour a day um you know service so people can log on and yeah. put the application and have it judged in the middle of the night if they want or you know speak to us about um you know I don't know, a blue badge application, it will be able to explain whether they will be successful or not. So you can really begin to see AI and things like that moving into the council and helping us with efficiency and helping us with customer care. You really can. And one of the things which excites me most about it is I love the idea of it's a slightly sensitive issue because of data privacy and things, but using artificial intelligence to spot patterns in data that humans wouldn't and flagging it to the human to then input into their judgment you know i i think that sort of thing you know if we're looking you were mentioned mentioning earlier supporting families and people on the edge of crisis well quite a lot of the time it's hard to identify those those families and those people and there are bound to be indicators that historically have led up to a family or a person being on the point of crisis and if and if they can be identified and then a human person can then have a look and say okay well we'll offer a bit of support here that might be something really useful as well and might stop more people falling through the gaps or as you say slipping through straight to crisis it's interesting you say that andrew because when we, when i was at the conference i was i was describing a, a moment ago i was talking to a few suppliers and we were having a conversation about adults and children so you know moving away from those you know planning or blue badge applications or whatever to kind of where the council spending most of its money so you know 80p-ish in every pound we'll spend on adults and children social care mm-hmm. so you know i said that's where the big money in the council is and you know, exactly that so if you could get artificial intelligence that could one identify patterns or maybe you know often when family goes into crisis it'll start with something which most people think is relatively minor like i don't know i can't afford you know uh, powder for the baby or you know a couple piece and you know artificial intelligence could say you know do you know that you're entitled to this benefit do you know you're entitled to that have you thought about this have you thought about that and it's often you know and I, as a parent myself you know i've experienced this in the middle of the night you know a child's crying or whatever and it's very difficult to be rational and you know if you've got lots of other things going on in your life and it's chaotic with some additional support which could be provided by artificial intelligence it could be saying have you thought about this have you thought about that have you thought about the other you know some of the other obvious uses again which this is where it was a real damascus moment because i hadn't thought of it in this way it was talking about you know we obviously use a lot of fleet in the borough, so, you know, um, gritters, refuge, wagons, etc. You know, you could have artificial intelligence permanently scouring that service and saying, OK, you know, we can make yeah. it more efficient by you can get this fuel at this station. It's cheap. Why don't you look at this insurance policy? It's cheaper. Why don't you look at the way in which the routes, you know, the vehicles are moving around the borough? If they did it in this way, it's cheaper. That particular yeah. vehicle, you know, it's not being driven very efficiently. Now, all of these things a human wouldn't be able to sit and scour all of those things on on almost a you know second by second basis and give real time information. And again, you could see lots of costs going down by artificial intelligence in the background verifying and and and, and you know confirming decisions. Yeah. That making. So for me, it was just like I'd never thought of it. In this it way. is it is amazing, and I, and I don't believe it's the threat to human workers that it is sometimes you know portrayed as. I read a read a really interesting article in the FT. I think it was yesterday that was basically reflecting on the invention of the spreadsheet and how the accountancy trade was terrified that they wouldn't that they would be out of a job but actually everybody just moves on to higher level more human work and that will always happen that will will always happen um look, that's been a really interesting conversation and one I, I wasn't expecting so i'm really pleased about that it's really interesting it's an area that i'm interested in as well so um i want to just move us back to uh, the the kind of um, rather than future gazing, just thinking about the here and now and how Halton services integrate with the wider system. So you operate in quite a complex system with the new NHS reforms, as well as being part of the Liverpool MCA. Um, I was just wondering if you could explain how all of that 
works and how you interact with the MCA and Steve Rotherman and his team. And then we'll we'll talk about health after that. If I can ask you first about the kind of MCA and how, how that all works. So there's a couple of bits of this, really. So obviously I was in Greater Manchester as part of a, a combined authority. I went to Lancashire and it wasn't, and now I'm back in Halton, which is again. And, you know, having moved between the two, you can really see the benefits of a, of a combined authority and a, and a metro mayor. Um, you know, obviously Steve and Andy in Manchester, obviously to some extent can act as the voice piece for a particular city region, can have yeah. much more strategic conversations with government than I think was possible in a non-combined authority area. But the way it works in in uh, Merseyside, I think works really well. So we um, get together as a, a as sort of co- combined authority chief exec. So there are five, six of us that get together um, and we discuss sort of the issues of the day, you know, where the challenges and pressures are, obviously talk about shaping uh, the agenda. Um, we then meet with the, the combined authority. So obviously they've got their own chief exec, which is on the non-political side. Uh, again, talking about, you know, the things that we want as a as a city region, what devolution powers would help us, you know, what levels of investment we want around the, our different priorities. Um, and our politicians meet as well with Steve, obviously on the political side. And then we all come together, um, once every, I think it's about every six weeks in Liverpool to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to kind of look forward and discuss what the things we want to deliver over the next few months and years and then agree, um, some of the governance things that we need to do. So investment in particular areas, transport schemes, et cetera, et cetera. What you see and why I think that works much more efficiently than it does just with a council working on its own. You know, a lot of the issues that we deal with at the combined authority are things like transport. That doesn't recognise yeah. boundaries of a, of a particular borough. Employment, education, you know, because we live in such a condensed area that we do, you know, people move across boundaries. So yeah. if you're going to maximise those those kind of journeys, you know, and maximise the some of those really hard inbuilt challenges that we've got in each of the boroughs within the city region. You need someone overarching the whole thing who can take that strategic look, can operate across um, borough boundaries, but can also act as a conduit to government. People who follow this closely will know, but so, some of the key things that the that the mayors are pushing for is more control over transport, more control over the skills agenda, that type of thing. And that all makes sense, doesn't it? Because as you say, skills... You know, people and getting people from A to B doesn't respect a council's boundaries. So it makes sense to think about that as, as a cluster. And, you know, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, skills transport's the obvious one that, that, that lots of them spend time on. And I can understand why, you know, we often look towards London and the integrated transport system they've got there, bus, tube, etc. train, you know, and that ability to get on a public transport in one place, move across a, a large geographical area for a relative yeah. modest cost is something that we're, we're trying to get to here. So, you know, we're trying to look at how we can integrate all of our different transports, um, you know, enable to get people to move, you know, from the far side of Holton, which is bordering Cheshire, into Liverpool, if that's where that's where they're going to get a job, you know, but leave the car at home. So that's a big thing. Now, we can't, as a council, um, step into that space. You know, we can't start integrating buses and start getting control of transport systems, you know, getting subsidised bus fares. Combined authorities can. So you can really begin to see, you know, if you want to really turbocharge your economy people have got to be able to move freely across the conurbation and steve and andy to be fair have stepped very well into that space as they've done in london and you know west midlands and all these other combined authority areas so that's a big area uh, where we we know where we want to see movement skills as you mentioned is another big one you know if we're going to increase our productivity to create jobs high value jobs for for people in who live in in Holton and live in Knowlesley and all across the city region, you know, we've got to do more to improve our skills. So working closely with local colleges, um, universities, you know, a key part of our agenda going forward is to ensure that we've got people with the right skills. And then when we create these job opportunities, it's the people who we've been working with over a number of years to upskill who can take advantage of that. Uh, The worst situation in the world is, you know, you create these high value jobs, but it's just people from outside of the area who come and get them because you've never addressed that skills issue. And it's the same with health and housing. Those are the uh, kind of other big ticket items. You know, if you haven't got a decent house, your health's not well, you haven't got skills, you've not got ability to move freely around a an economic area you know you're never going to see people moving out of poverty and those are kind of the areas where the combined authority and local authorities work really closely i mean as well as supporting people who are vulnerable out of poverty and 
out of the various difficult situations they find themselves in. Really good public services are essential for attracting inward investment as well, because if, if you're going to attract inward investment, you want new businesses to start, you want more jobs in, in Halton, you've got to have the public services to support that investment and to make it attractive for for people to want to come and set up in Halton. Of course you do. I mean, when you speak to any business about relocating to a particular place, I mean, once they've, you know, once they've dealt with the immediate issues of, you know, where would the business be located? You know, what's the, what's the rates? What's the cost of relocating to that particular place? Then they're obviously going to start looking at connectivity. Can people get to work? Because if you can't get people to, to work, then you obviously business will just fail so that's a key part to them they want to know about skills in the local area and employment rates you know can they get a workforce to come and work for them again that's a really key issue then you get into those secondary issues around health and housing you know if people have pure poor health outcomes you know poor housing then it impacts on their ability to be productive in a in, a, in an employer and that's the sort of process that you'll go through with anyone who wants to relocate those are the bits of information that they want that obviously feed yeah. into those decisions and for me are just as important as saying well you know if we, if, if we relocate and build a, a factory or an office or whatever on this particular site that's the amount of money it will cost us because you need to ensure that you've got you know movement of goods of people you've got um, workforce that can come and work for you that live in decent housing have good health outcomes and all come to work every day those are pretty basic economic choices that businesses want to assurance around I mean, it just it constantly amazes me and astounds me just the, the the breadth of influence that a council can have. I mean, I still have friends not not involved in in public services who just think all this stuff that we've been talking about just happens by magic, and I don't think people realise the the hard work that's going on you know behind the scenes. So, um, another area that you're obviously going to be heavily involved in is how the council interacts with the healths system um is there a joined up approach to tackling the wider social determinants of health and well-being because there's obviously the new integrated care system um structure now and uh, i'm sure that's been an interesting journey over the past 14 months i think you said it was yeah i mean if if i'm being brutally honest i think we 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 the royal we could do better um so there there are some practical things that we do so we've got a director um from from the health system who sits on my management team tony does you know does a great job um you know and he helps to try and integrate more we've got a couple of work streams work streams called healthy halton where my director of children's services director of public health and director of adult services are heavily involved to try and get better integration there's a clear understanding across the system that you know better health outcomes, you know, will ultimately result in lower levels of, of demand across the public sector. Yeah. So you know, DWP in terms of benefit claims, local authority in terms of, of, of the support we, we get to. So I think there's a real strong understanding that if we can get better and they can get better, it positively impacts on each other. I think it becomes difficult because I think my personal view is the health system is hugely complex. It's large. It's very difficult to change and transform. I think sometimes those links between the work that they do and the impact on also vice versa isn't as clear. I think there is confusion as well. Um, and I say this from as a chief executive of council between the roles of different parts of the NHS, uh, you know, and who you should be speaking to. Um, I, you know, so I think there's there's lots of bits that we could get better. And I'm sure if you were speaking to a chief executive of, of you know, a part of the NHS. I'm sure they'd be saying the same about the council. We don't know who it is. We don't know which parts of the system to influence. We're trying yeah. to do a, quite a lot in that space, but we could do much more. And I think we all recognise that. Yeah. No, it is. It is very complicated, and it's the same everywhere, um, where there is that just attempt to try and make it work. And I think a, a lot of it at the minute seems to be driven by the personalities and attitudes of individual leaders and just how they have a relationship and things which which is great if you've got great relationships and great leaders but it's a challenge you know it's not it's never going to be a system that just automatically works by kind of you know turning the wheel it it has to involve a, a real relational approach where everybody respects each other and and understands everyone's role it does. I mean, I think the other thing that I think is an issue for, for the NHS is, and again, you're getting into national transformational territory now, is that it's become a, a sick system. And as much as, you know, it should do more in terms of health prevention and, and better health outcomes, it doesn't. You know, if you're ill, you present yourself at the hospital, you know, and they um, will try and make you better as opposed to instead of, you know, having bad diet 
diet choices or smoking or drinking too much. If you did less of that, you wouldn't then present as, as ill. So, but it doesn't do that. It just focuses on the acute end and doesn't necessarily do the preventative work. Yeah. I think if it's really going to be you know, an integrated successful system, it needs to move more towards that kind of preventative work and less on the on the acute end. But that's a really easy thing to say, but incredibly difficult thing to do when you've got well, more it, and more people yeah. preventing as, as being unwell. I mean, it comes back to the same principles that you were talking about earlier about how you shift from reacting to crisis to prevention it's exactly the same thing how do you get money out of acutes how do you reduce demand on acute services over time and it's exactly the same thing so no i really appreciate you sharing those insights with me the other thing i would say andrew sorry about that is you know the other thing that makes the nhs incredibly difficult or incredibly more difficult dare i say than the local authority is that you know we clearly are political you know we've got members you know a couple of weeks ago we had our local elections incredible political was seen as a as you know a a kind of a, a litmus test if you like on the popularity of the government obviously the nhs is much more political i would argue you know what we were just describing there would requ- require a whole scale nhs change and obviously that's obviously a difficult political pill to swallow and a difficult one for the electorate yeah. to to kind of swallow so i always think that they get caught in this over politicized environment which i think makes it much more difficult for for colleagues in the nhs so i do have a lot of sympathy for for what they're trying to do so Speaking of political high pressure environments, children's services is something we should talk about as well. So Halton's children's services was issued with an improvement notice in January of last year, which was just a couple of months before you joined as chief exec. And I know that you've been working really hard on this. So can you describe the nature of the challenges that the service faced and what actions being taken? Yeah, so, you know, it was it was issued with an improvement notice. So um, the way these things work is an improvement notice is basically as it sounds you know it's a notice you must improve because if you don't improve you'll ultimately end up in intervention via an offset inspection so we were given as a result of that improvement notice uh, uh, an officer from the dfe who's uh, an ex director of children's services who works with the council in terms of helping us improve the way in which we deliver children's services but then we're also given another ex um, director of children's services who works directly with the council so we've got one that reports into the dfe and one that works with the council in terms of that improvement journey the challenges we faced um were you know it was more around you know better outcomes for children so you know having a really strong understanding of how you know who's in the system what they're in the system for and how you can help them get out of the system, you know, to support people in terms of edge of care. So it's all the stuff that I described previously that we we were were identified as not doing as well as perhaps we could. So we've worked incredibly hard over the last 14 months that I've been here working with the DfE advisor and working with the advisor to the council, bringing all our partners in because children's services is, 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 you know, something that's done across a partnership horizon. It's not just the council, so the police, health, schools, and just ensuring that the was a much stronger system in place so we could identify people and children that were falling into need you know and provide earlier help and intervention and support to children ensuring that we're getting the better out best outcomes possible for our children um you know so uh, quite a number of work streams that were really focused at that particular area and we've seen quite a lot of movement over the last 14 months and it's been incredibly positive so since then we've had a we've had a focused inspection from Ofsted on our front door which went very well and we've had an annual conversation with Ofsted which is where they sit you down every year and basically say where are you how are you getting on that went really well and we've had a, a positive conversation with the Department for Education again as part of their annual conversation as a result of all of that work you know we've done quite a lot to move the dial to ensure that our children in in the care system wherever in the care system they are that they're getting the best possible outcomes and we know you know we've got real confidence that, that that's the case because we're becoming very much an evidence-driven service. For a journey like that getting momentum and just getting some positive feedback some reassurance that you're heading in the right direction it must be really important for the staff team as well yeah it was i mean quite a lot of things we did along the way so we started off by trying to set a really strong vision what it is we wanted to achieve um you know we brought the we brought the voice of the staff onto our improvement board so we have a, a session every time so we have people from the shop floor who come and say you know this is what the staff are feeling this is how they're feeling i've been out with um, quite a number of different social worker teams so you know i've been into people's homes 
where they where they, you know they're doing um, support for children that aren't in education who've been excluded or children that you know have got issues with drug and alcohol all of those issues I've been into foster care meetings so all of that so I really became wanted to be really visible so the staff could see me and you know feel comfortable to say we don't think this is being done as well as it could or you could focus more on that so that that's been a key part of it we've got um, a new director of children's services who's just an interim at the moment but she's been brilliant in terms of being very visible to staff so there's real visible leadership. Um, you know, like I said, we've re-engaged our partnerships with our schools and our uh, partners or police and courts, etc. So there's a really strong link, um, you know, between what we're trying to do and what they're trying to do. So we understand each other's agendas, you know, really begun to look at some of the outcomes that our children are achieving and, and the care settings that they're currently in are those the most appropriate care settings. So a real kind of root and branch review of the whole service. Yeah. But recognising that these things, you know, they take a number of years to go wrong. Often it's never a, a critical failure. It declines over a number of years, but it also rises over a number of years. So really keen to ensure that we recognise we're on the right path at the moment but we don't take our eye off the ball and we keep pushing and pushing yeah. and pushing but the point I said before we, we really now have become quite a data-led council so you know I yeah. think historically we struggled to really be able to articulate with figures you know how many children were you know engaging with certain services you know what were the children in care stats what were the outcomes etc you know our social workers how many children were they looking after you know so now we're able to say that you know the caseloads you know, between 17 and 30, depending on the experience of the caseworker, you know, how many children are in care, how many children are on the edge of care, where a lot caught yeah. order. So really strong understanding of what's happening in the system because it is a really complex system. Fantastic. So I, I want to finish with two quick questions. So the first one is uh, I'm really interested in how leaders find time to reflect and a bit of headspace to do some of the really important thinking. I can see you nodding there. People in the podcast won't obviously see that, but um, because it's such a high pressure job that you do and other chief execs do. How do you find the time to reflect and think? So I'd love to be able to say, Andrew, that um, every week I have a, some reflection time where me and my leaders come together and we reflect, but that would be a complete lie. Um, in, in reality, <laughs> quite a lot of mine, it's, it's not the most complex or clever of answers I run so I do a lot of running um so okay. when you can go run eight nine ten miles when you're running it gives you a lot of time to think and think things through well every every evening I have maybe one night week off, but yeah, most nights I'll run eight, nine, ten miles. Um, and, and that helps me in terms of, of just reflecting on the day, some of the challenges that I've got, um, you know, and, and, and things that we need to move. So I do that quite a lot. I do try and chisel time out in my diary, but it often just gets swamped with things that you deal with in the here and now. Wow, that that's real discipline as well, actually, that um, I thought I exercised a bit, but not anything like that, Stephen, I must say. And it, then, helps, it helps as, with sanity as well, Andrew. Yeah, no, it is very, it's very good for mental health. Very, very good for mental health. And I certainly feel a lot better after I've exercised, for sure. The problems seem to kind of be, be more surmountable. I think once you've done a bit of exercise. So yeah, I, I haven't got to the point where I'm needing nine miles and even <laughs> to deal with it but that's good um as a very last question and i asked this of all um interviewees in the podcast what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or around public services who, who wants to make an impact in the way you have and wants to get you know because there's there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who want to eventually be a council chief exec so what bit of advice would you give to them um, my advice would be to set your stall out early on. Um, the number of people I meet who say, you know, I want to be a chief executive, I haven't really given a great deal of thought about what they would do when they get there, what they want to achieve, where they want to be a chief executive, you know, what they want from their relationship with the leader, which is a key, a key thing. You know, yeah. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about it before I, before I'd ever applied for any of them about, you know, what it would be like, what I thought it would be like, what I wanted to achieve, what success would look like, you know, which sort of leader I wanted to work with, which which obviously then identifies a number of leaders that you didn't want to work with. So all of those things I think you have to set out. So it really is, you know, spend quite a lot of time thinking and setting your stall out before you put pen to paper. I think that's probably right, actually, because it's not something you just trip over and fall into. You need to be thinking about what skills, what experience do I need to be a plausible candidate for a start for this thing? And that kind of forward thinking really helps. That that goes back to, you know, what we were discussing before. And then that's where my relationship with Donna got really strong, because the other piece of advice, I know you only asked for one, but would be to speak to people that have done it. And obviously sure. Donna provided some fantastic insights and advice, yeah. things that perhaps I haven't thought of. So it's, you know, use all your networks to learn from others. 
Fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. It's been fantastic. So that was a very interesting conversation. It's honestly really hard to believe that Stephen's only been a chief executive for 14 months. He's got a plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's really impressive. I think it's also interesting that he's a chief executive that has come from a place regeneration background. I think that's particularly pertinent at the minute when levelling up is so high on the agenda. There are quite a few things I want to cover. The first is the Halton reform programme. I think it sounds really interesting and it was great to see Stephen being so honest about the need to almost double run things when you're trying to move from crisis response to prevention, that you need to put resources and finance into the programme so that you can start to ease away from constantly firefighting to having a system which is more under control with demand a bit more managed. And I think the way he described the philosophy and the structure of that was interesting. The second point I wanted to raise was that he's obviously studied the same Michael Barber delivery unit books that I have. The idea of taking the philosophy of the delivery unit with the daily stand-up meetings, checking progress and everything, taking that into a council environment, I think is fantastic. And it's clearly delivering results for them. And the important thing which we talked about during the conversation was that they're keeping it up. It's not just an idea that has blown out within a couple of months. This is now how they operate as a council. And that is really interesting. The bit of the conversation where Stephen describes the advantages of being part of a mayoral combined authority is instructive. There are key things that across a full conurbation you need to do collectively, like transport is a really good example. People need to be able to move around the whole Liverpool city region and skills is another point. People will move themselves across the region and their skills go with them. So it does make a lot of sense for at that bigger footprint to do things like transport and skills, which is what the best mayors in the country are now doing. And finally, I have to talk about AI. Um, Stephen described his road to Damascus moment where he all of a sudden realised the impact that AI could have on council services. And he talked about how some of the more regimented responses that the council sometimes takes a long time to make. So things which are quite fixed around planning applications, that type of thing, that could be all automated. He talked about the possibility of a 24-hour council. And then also we got into that conversation about making really good use of data and all of the data points that are held about a family, a person to try and pinpoint when they might be reaching crisis in order that a human being can go and talk to them and use human skills to try and solve the problems. But I do think there's something there about using AI and all of the data we've got, which a human mind cannot get their heads around to make sure that we don't miss things, that we don't miss patterns, that we don't miss trends, that we don't keep letting people slip into crisis when all of the information we need is there to identify them and to allow us to try and stop them from doing that, which is a better result for everybody. So thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to leave a review if you want to, wherever you get your podcasts, apparently that helps, and I will see you next time. <laughs>